You're listening to the podcast, so there I was. It's how every great aviation tale begins. This fig is episode number 38. That's uh, that's pretty incredible. It sounds weird when that comes out of your mouth. 38. Right. Seems like we just started this a couple of weeks ago. Right, but here we are. And what's even more incredible is the guest we have this week. You all know him as Nasty. He came back to chat with us. Fig, before I talk more about Nasty, I got a question to ask you. What sure. is the worst mandatory reading assignment you ever got hit with? Are we talking mil military, uh, military H reading? High assignment? school, military, college. <laughs> what was the worst thing you ever had to read? It was probably when we were uh, lieutenants in the Marine Corps. The first uh, required reading was uh, war fighting, bar fighting. <laughs> bar, we called it bar fighting. It was horrible. It was so dry. I, I don't ever remember anything about it. As a matter of fact, I don't even know if I read it. Right. Not horrible. Exactly. I mandatorily well, me, read it, but I didn't read it. Exactly. I, 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 and you hate mandatory reading assignments, but I can assure you that Nasty's book, Learn How to Lead to Win, coming out in about a week, is without a doubt the best book that will ever be mandatory reading. And it is my hope that it is mandatory reading. If I'd have known some of this stuff when I was a 19 year old officer candidate or a 22 year old second lieutenant, how much easier would life have been, Fig? Oh, it'd have been, well, you'd have had a head start. Bingo. Because his book is, is spot on. I mean, it's, and it's told, he tells stories from his fleet experience that he rolls into basically leadership and life lessons. Absolutely. So much fun to listen to and to go, you know what? These actually work. This is real life. Here's what I did. Here's And he doesn't talk about all his great leadership. He talks about some of his, some of his near misses and how he learned from that, <laughs> not to repeat right. it. So here's a man who did over eight years at sea, over 36 years active duty. You've heard him before. You know him. You love him. Without further ado, here's Nasty. Don't sit on the injection seat handle. Don't do it. In the world's Don't do smallest it. cockpit. Oh. On the tanker, through the weather. Oh, and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that. Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. I'm not. Well, there I was. Crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun. Of all the so there I was. Which, as you know, is how all great aviation stories start. Welcome back, Nasty. And uh, to my cohorst, repeat, wherever you are in the world, where are you? I, I think I'm home tonight. I've been home for way too long. It's time for me to start traveling again. But thank you for coming back and spending some time with us. Oh, Nancy. my gosh. We have been so stoked about this one that uh, we can't begin to explain it. We're live streaming it and everything, too. But one of the special reasons Nasty is back is he has a new book coming out in about a week. It's Learn How to Lead to Win by Admiral Mike Menazer, a.k.a. Nasty. So Fig and I. Got the cheat code. We got to preview the book. And yes. what an amazing read it was. It was a lot of fun. The concept of the book is this man who spent 36 years in the Navy on active duty 
over eight years at sea away from his family, learned a couple lessons along the way about how to connect with people and how to get people to do things under really difficult circumstances. He is very careful, and I'm going to begin at the end. He's very careful not to leave out the people who helped him get all those people together and to do things under difficult circumstances. They were doing difficult things under difficult circumstances themselves. That's easy for me to say. Um, He he refers to himself as a national asset and as an air group commander and as a captain of a large deck nuclear powered aircraft carrier and of supply ships and of a captain of any ship for that matter, you are in fact a national asset. But like any machine, if all the parts aren't working, then None of the parts may as well work. And he refers to his bride, Kelly, and his daughter, Megan, and his son, Ryan, as part of that national asset. And that's so true. And to all the Kellys and the Megans and the Ryans out there who have sacrificed time with their dad, with their brother, with their mother, with their sister, to allow them to go to sea, to go to the desert, to go up to Alaska and do winter training, to do all the remote training that we do, active duty in the military, God bless you and thank you. Yeah. It is an amazing sacrifice that you too also give, and you make that national asset possible. You are just as equal partner in making our homeland secure as these soldiers, sailors, Marine guardsmen, all that are out there uh, on on the front. So, well said. Thank you for that point of personal privilege, privilege up there, nasty, and welcome. And wow, where'd you get the idea for this book? This is awesome. Yeah, thanks. Being on with you guys again is is so awesome. And I want to I want to just emphasize the national asset tone. I use it in plural. Um, I never refer to myself as a national asset, but I do. I do reflect on the fact that those who serve with their families are national assets. And and you said it exactly right. But I actually use it as a plural. Um, So. So anyway, thanks for bringing that up first. So the book. So. So, you know, um, when I got out of the Navy uh, and went to work in, uh, in industry, uh, my company has a leadership program and, and they would have the senior, uh, you know, the, the senior uh, executives in the company come and brief the, the young managers. And I, so I was doing that starting in the late, late part of 2017. So essentially five years. And Pete, Every audience I went and talked to that asked a question about leadership over four years, every question, I didn't have an answer. I had a story. There you go. My Navy experience and what I got to do in the Navy, and I'm humbled and honored to be able to fly airplanes, drive ships, you know, be a strike group commander, that whole thing. But, but the learning I did, as is characterized in the book with 33 stories, I learned so much and it dawned on me, oh my gosh, I, I've I, I got to write these stories down. Now, having said that, I have no time. I have a full-time job and I was at a meeting with, with my now business partner, who's named Ben Carroll. He's a very successful businessman in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And he is awesome. We've become very, very, very close. And he says, you know, we're at this meeting goes, and I told some story and he goes, Mike, you ought to write a book. And I'm like, I, I, I have no time to write a book. And he goes, oh, it's easy. You just narrate into this, you know, software in a microphone and, and it, it translates, uh, you know, what you say into a word document. Like, okay, hey, great. You know, I still got thinking I got to do this by myself. And he goes, and I'll help you. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. You know, blah, blah, blah. So we go a couple of weeks. He calls me up and he says, hey, book, you got homework. I'm like, what book? <laughs> he goes, book. 
And so that book would not have happened without Ben Carroll. Um, and he said, your homework is to come up with 20 stories that we can turn into chapters, one each. I came up with 45, oh, yes. 45 things that I could turn story that we could hook a leadership lesson to. And so then, you know, in this whole process, and I won't belabor this, but um, in the process here, we, we got an editor named Sandy Wendell, and she is unbelievably awesome. She says, cut, 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 33. And then you'll find in, as you read each one of the chapters in that book, the first part of it is a hook. It's some kind right. of a, right? That's her. That's Sandy. She said, oh, I, I love that format. I love that format. Yeah. He did that. So way it, did. Down- it hooked me when I, sorry, I'll stop yeah. talking. I'm, I'm interrupting you and you keep going. Sorry. No, no. So, and, and, and I'll tell you the format and then we'll stop. And so, so, you know, move this to here. And then what, what's, what Ben did is, okay, Mike, you said this is a leadership lesson. So, you know, or, or a, sorry, a story in which you learned something. What, what did you learn? And he'd interview me, ask me questions. And we crafted a leadership lesson to tack onto each story. And then Ben did the research to go, hey, who else is out there talking about this sort of thing? So Stephen Covey and John Maxwell and Brent Gleason and, you know, Admiral Stavridis and people that had written and talked about leadership. And so we have a story from Mike, a leadership lesson and a leadership resource in each chapter. And it took about so I first narrated into a microphone in the middle of April of 2022. So you can look at the calendar and go, we put this thing together with a team effort in about eight months. That's amazing. And, That's and impressive. It, I'm so proud of it. I can't even tell you. Well, yeah. and you should be. Uh, folks that are listening to this, I'm begging you, go get this book. My first comment back to Nasty after getting to read the book was, this should be mandatory reading for every prospective military officer, and for that matter, anybody who seeks a position of leadership. You boil so many things down that are, once you say it, you're like, oh, of course, that's obvious. Right. But yeah. until you say it, 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 it's kind of, it's in the mystical soup of, of yeah. where, you know, how it works. So. One is. Anybody who has a critique, there's nothing new in there. That's exactly right. Everything that I learned about leadership, I stole. I stole from some leader that, you know, was either doing it or not doing it. That's where I learned. So plagiarism and leadership is absolutely authorized. And, and you're right, Pete, there's nothing new in there. It's just like, oh, yeah, that. And it worked for me. And the other thing I did when I was in the Navy was, okay, let's just talk about leadership concepts. I want to tell you what I actually do. What do I do to make this lesson come home or to lead in this certain way? What tactic did I use? Because I, I think that's the most valuable thing to get across to people. Right. Well, like you said, uh, I don't remember which chapter it was, and it resonated so well. Leaders aren't born. Leaders are made. And so you take a little from all the good leadership experiences you have and turn it into your own, right? And that's what you did. And you wrote a book about it. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I really want to pay it forward. And, uh, you know, because I, there's, there's I think there's a dearth of leadership out there in all organizations that, that we've yeah. lost the ability to connect as human beings with each other, because the secret to leadership is you're connecting with the people that you're leading with. It's not about your title. It's not about being an admiral. It's not about being the captain. It's not about being a VP. It's not about being the CEO. It's about how you connect with the team and you lead a team. You guys know this. I mean, Marines train oh, yeah. 
you know, small team leadership. The SEALs train to this. And to be able to connect with somebody and say, that guy, I'll follow that guy because he cares about me. He cares about my view, my work, my background, my perspective, you know, that whole thing. And, and I'll go anywhere with that guy because he, he cares or she cares about me. And you know what? If you don't think that your leader cares about you, you're going to hold back. It's not, it's not psychologically safe. You're going to hold back and you're not going to give your best to the team. So I always wanted to make sure that the people I led with, and notice I say with and teammates, all that kind of stuff, is that they knew that I cared about them and I wanted them to care about the mission as much as I did. You know, that's the overriding theme of the book, I think, that was amazing to me is that you, and again, as I said to Fig at the very beginning, the first time we talked, it's like, this guy just oozes leadership. And I, I can tell you, it, it's genuine. And I forget who the who the comedian was that said, you know, once you've got a, a sincerity fake, <laughs> you've got it made type thing. But And you point out that you can't fake that in there. And I'll want to go back to followership here in a minute. But it's I think it's in Chapter 22 where you break it down to the six-year-old child. And you're not doing it in a condescending way. You're not, my people aren't six-year-olds. That's not what you're saying. You're saying is every six-year-old wants to be picked first for the team. Every six-year-old wants to be included. They want their work to be, you know, oh, look, you know, that's great. Let's put it on the refrigerator. They, they want to be recognized for their effort, uh, even if that effort sometimes falls short. But that doesn't mean that it can't be honed and brought up. Can you talk more about... <clears throat> How you figured that out, because that that I think is your most prophetic point in the book that allows you to connect at the deepest level with your people. Um, you know, I don't know how I figured it out. Maybe it was, you know, the golden rule, treat, treat others as you want to be treated. But but I, what resonated with me over the years was everybody wants to feel valued for who they are, what they do, their perspective, their outlook, their work. They came to work that day. Everybody wants to feel valued. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves, but, but individually they want to feel valued. And the best examples I could come up with were like when you got picked for the kickball team or you got, you know, you, how you felt when you got picked last. You weren't valued for yourself. And that, that got reinforced and reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. I realized that in all of my commands and in all of the opportunities I had to lead, even when I was not in command, when I recognize somebody for what they did or being there or whatever that was, it had this huge effect. And, and it, if somebody, you know, I mean, just passing to me, you know, especially somebody relatively senior, you know, walking down the, the passageway or, or whatever going, uh, hey, hey, nasty, I saw that thing you did really, you know, shit off. And, uh, oh, you, you noticed that? Oh, wow. Wow. Thanks. Cloud nine for like 24 hours yeah. because some what I did and, and I, I used to be really overt and intentional about recognizing somebody. So when I would talk on the one MC on Nimitz, you know, you know, good evening, Nimitz warriors. This is old salt. You know, what a great day outside. Let me tell you about Seaman, you know, uh, Smith down in, uh, in deck division, you know, today she, she was the team lead for our unrep, very successful unrep, and her team like shattered records. And, and you know, now Seaman Smith down on the mess deck somewhere in the bowels of an aircraft carrier is going, That's me. That's me. You talking about me? Yeah. Come on, me. <laughs> and name recognition, you know, people they they will 
they, they like to be recognized for their efforts. And there's a huge theme here. And my, my leadership secret is human connection. Yeah. You know, knowing people's names, knowing how they pronounce their names, knowing where they come from a little bit, knowing why they, you know, what their story was when they, they came in. And, and I used to use a lot of that on the 1MC every night on Nimitz, recognize somebody. And I would go overboard because two things happen. One, that Not person, literally, I hope. <laughs> yeah, that was bad. Cho- poor choice of words, uh, Admiral. Poor choice of words. Sorry. Um, so the... You know, the person would feel valued and then the rest of the crew would go, hey, I want my name. I want my name read out, too. You know, so right on. that's that's you know, I can be recognized here, too. So I'm going to try to be recognized and I'm going to work harder for the vision and the the thing that we're doing here. So, yeah. Anyway, Fig, I got a question for you. You ever got you ever gotten to sit in the in the captain's chair on a large deck nuke carrier? Let me think. No, not one time ever. No, not one time ever. That's what he used to do. He'd bring them up, let them sit sit in the captain's chair, look out Isn't the bridge. That oh my God, that is so special! And I bet those people for the rest of their lives are going to remember. You know, hey, I sat in the captain's chair on the Nimitz. Let me tell you about the time I sat in the captain's chair. Yep, yep. That's yeah. huge. That's I'm, huge. I'd go. Yep, yep. You know, Petty Officer Jones over there. He just he just waved off that F eighteen. I got to figure out why, but he he's controlling flight ops right now. You know, it's like, oh man. Right. We know a uh, – there's my mic. Yeah, sorry. Uh, we actually know a, a young lieutenant, uh, now Admiral, who once took control of, uh, of an aircraft carrier. <laughs> right. Why we're speaking to him. I'll take the wins, <laughs> Captain. Yes, sir. I, I enjoyed reading that uh, story again. You know, I heard it from you uh, when we interviewed you m- months back, but when I read it again in your book, it was awesome. It was just awesome. So we don't leave the entire audience in the dark that hasn't heard that. It's our uh, episode called Happy Birthday, Yogi. And then we go on to Here's the Bug Roach and The Best Job in the Galaxy. Those three cover this issue. But if you would briefly recap that story and if you could tell us the lesson you did learn about leadership from that. Yeah, so so for the for the listeners who haven't heard that story, so in, uh, in oh, I think it's August or July of 1991, uh, we had an A6 over the top of Abraham Lincoln, and I was the air wing LSO, the CAG LSO, and there was a malfunction of the seat, and, and uh, Keith Gallagher, the bombardier navigator, was ejected halfway out of the airplane, and, and the, the seat was then pinned, and he stopped halfway out. And so, you know, all of a sudden, we were doing an emergency pull forward, and the ship was turning real hard, and we had to recover this airplane. And, and uh, so I learned that that the BN is still with the airplane. His feet are in the cockpit is the quote I get from the air bosun, which of course ups my heart rate just a little bit. I go running over to the LSO platform, ships in a huge turn. And, and I look out off to the right-hand side and, and here comes this, this a six, I can make that out. And he's got closer trying to get over to the back end of the carrier to be able to come aboard. You know, I see something misshapen out the top and as he gets closer, I realize it's, it's Keith stuck out. He looks like a cross. His arms are, are laid apart, and um, and and he's he's uh, as he gets closer. I think he's dead. But in the process of getting the aircraft aboard, with the ship turning hard to get into the relative wind they were supposed to have, um, I just took my authority as the CAG LSO, and I'm talking to the pilot about what to do with his airplane. At the same time, I'm telling the captain on the radio, "Steady the ship up. I'll take the winds where they are." 
because I, I needed to get, I wanted to get uh, Yogi and um, Master yeah. first time so that, you know, we, we have a chance of saving Yogi. And I have no idea if he's dead or alive or whatever, but the, the more time he spends airborne, he's not going to be good out there hanging outside the airplane, typically not good outside the airplane. So, <laughs> so, you know, I'm telling, you know, I tell a captain uh, Ellis at the time who became a four star, you know, I say, hey, steady up, you know, and then, and then literally over the, over the thing, steady up. I'll take the wind captain. And this God voice comes on the radio and goes, steady it up. <laughs> and here, on Yogi's website and uh, ship steadied up. And I, I talked, I talked uh, Mark Baden down into a, a one wire. He bounced, the hook bounces over the one, the two, and the three. And I'm yelling, attitude, 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 attitude. And he grabs the four on the fly. Okay, bring it back to the left now. Boss, steady out right here. I'll take the wind. 39, slightly left. Copy. Okay, flying just a little bit low. Roger. Tower, steady out right here. Got 39 slightly poured. I'll take the wind, Cap. Steady up. Okay, just a little bit low. Roger. Just a little bit low. Come left. That paddle's talked down. I got you. Come a little bit left. A little bit of right rudder. A little bit of right rudder. We're on center line. On center line. A little right for lineup. Don't go high. Don't go high. Attitude, attitude, attitude. As they crossed the ramp, I Gallagher was dead because all I saw was a bare face looking at me. He had lost his helmet and mask in the in the windstream. And there's this bare face laid over, eyes closed, looking at me. I said, oh, my God, I'm looking at a dead guy. And it was yeah. shot. <laughs> I remember where that happened in the narration to get Mark Baden on board. And as you listen to the radio, there's no pause in my voice, which is weird because my brain went, ah! <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah, so got him aboard. And and as as I think you guys tell in your, uh, in your episode with – Yogi, I mean, all of a sudden he starts waking up like a marionette and he just comes back to life and he's alive. And so that was so the leadership lesson I learned and, and as we talk about in the book, um, you know, take the authority you have and lead with that authority, that competence, that accountability. You know, I took that whole approach. I took the ship, I took the airplane, I took the what was gonna happen. If I didn't get the winds right and he hit the ramp, that was all me. Um, and it would have played out right on the radio and, and, you know, and, you know, right now thinking about that one and one other story that I did with the ship makes my knees shake because holy crap, it could have gone the other way. So, sure. but I, I was right. So yeah. And it turned out okay. So, but there are also leaders out there and I'm sure you served with some of them that, uh, that would have said, no, no, I'm going to keep the ship going until I get it into the wind. I know what's right here and they're not going to take their input from subordinates even though so i i'm just impressed that uh captain ellis went oh it, it was ellis right is that the, yeah 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 yep, captain I, I'm, I'm impressed that captain ellis took that okay this guy knows what he sees and he sees what he wants and he's going to take it so um so kudos to him as well for uh absolutely for glad you pointed that out it's it's the job of the leader to understand what um what what skills they have in the team and to trust the team 
And one of my leadership maxims is trust is everything. Trust absolutely everything. And so he had trust in me. When I was the CEO in Nimitz, I had trust in the CAG LSOs. And if we had something happening with Nimitz, I'd go, okay, this is what I can do with the ship. What do you want to do? And they would tell me what they want to do. And that's what I did because I trusted them. And I also was a CAG LSO. So I also knew what to trust. And, uh, but, but you're right. I, I, I was very, very lucky in that I had a trusting captain who knew that I, I, well, who knew that I thought I knew what I was doing. <laughs> How easy it would have been to micromanage that. Think about that. And then later on, years later, when you're sitting in that seat, how easy that would have been to micromanage every time you go, well, I used to do this. I know better. But no, you got to trust your people, right? You got you can't micromanage. Uh, hey, uh, uh, slightly wait, off wait, subject. Oh, go ahead. Wait, go ahead. Go ahead, Nasty. Let me hammer on that. You, you know, Fig, you said exactly a very, a very important thing. So when I was captain... Um, CAG LSO, you know, I let do their thing. I trusted them. And then, and then the next time when I had that opportunity was when I was striker commander on the Eisenhower and Marcus Hitchcock was the captain. I was already a new commanding officer and he expected me to tell him what to do with the ship or at least to have a vote. And I said, no, uh, -uh, you're the captain. And I never touched it. And so I would say the message to, to the listeners is even if you're really coming and that was you do not go there. Do not micromanage based on your background. Leave it alone and trust the person who is in your wake, trained to do the same thing you were, because they'll appreciate the fact that you didn't micromanage them, just like you appreciated when your leaders didn't micromanage you. It's it's a learning. That's, right. That's a, great, if, that's a great point. And you can always go back and go, what did we do well? What could we do better? What lessons did we learn? Right. Yeah. You know, so. I want to talk about uh, I, I want to talk about a name that comes up often in your book. Uh, that uh, was a specific chapter that it came up, but then throughout the book it comes up again this name, uh, and it's it's Bug, Bug Roach. And yep. so, you know, I remember uh, reading passages, and I may not have it right, so don't don't hate me, nasty. But it's like I you took you took things from Bug and you said basically I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be like that. I want to be respected like Bug. I want to be as competent as Bug, right? And so that was a th kind of a theme I picked up on. Uh but Bug wrote made a big impression on you. He did. And I am shocked you haven't memorized my book yet, Fig, but uh, you know <laughs> I go back and read it. That's your homework and then uh, I'll test you. But no, um I got the unique and I've, I mean, it's the hand of providence for me, you know, fate or God intervene in my whole career in life, I'm telling you. But because I failed at carrier qualification the first time in A4s down at VT-21, I was on my own for air combat maneuvering training in advanced. And my 2V1 wingman was Bug Roach. I didn't know that guy except that he was the operations officer at NAS Kingsville. He was, he, when he walked in, he was larger than life. I'm like, look at this guy. Um, you know, deep voice, big grin, huge mustache, obviously a fighter pilot. Not till years later did I recognize that a, you know, a lieutenant commander fighter pilot who is detailed as the opso of a training base like Kingsville is probably not in the, you know, high in the fit rep 500. However, you know, I got to learn him there and just fell in love with the guy when I was doing air combat. And, and I tell the story in the book, he would just, we wouldn't even brief. I knew he knew I knew what I was doing and he would tell bug stories and they're, they're classic. 
but that's awesome. We just narrate to me about what to do with my airplane. So, so then I get out on the fleet and I go to, you know, the rag and I start writing and I start hearing about bug at Miramar and, and waving. And I start to hit, learn about this legend. And what the reason I wanted to be him was because he was absolutely famous for calming pilots down on awful nights. I mean, decks pitching plus or minus 30 feet. It's raining, can't barely see huge pitching deck, bad storms. It's darker than shit outside. And he's talking, he's going, Hey, you're, you're fine. I will tell you what to do. You can <laughs> and get you aboard and we'll go have a slider, a one-eyed Jack with a, with a fried egg on top. And it, it's going to be great. And he used non-standard comms to talk to people about what to do with a stick. And he would literally tell them nose down, now pull it back up. And he had this thing. I got, I got to use it one time as a cag LSO and the term was land it. He just come on the ring, land it, you know, and, and put the thing in. (laughs) I loved the human connection he built between himself and the pilots on really bad nights. And we're talking, this guy was a CAG LSO four times, you know, including on the Oriskany in Vietnam. And then later on the Ranger in CAG two, when CAG rabbit Campbell brought him aboard to be the CAG LSO, the guy's like, you know, a hundred years old and has been a lieutenant you know, a hundred years, they made him a commander, just, just honorary, I think, but they brought him a <laughs> and I just want, and at the time, you know, on the East coast, they were very much about standard LSO calls. Well, there are times when a standard LSO power call or a right for lineup will work. And there are other times when there's something in there, you just want to say to the pilot to do with his or her airplane and that's when you come up with something. And, and, and Bug was able to picture the cockpit and to, and to fly the airplane for the pilot to help them get aboard. And then, hey, you know, and then he was always like, great job, great job, you know, and he would reward them for it. So the grades in CAG 2 were off the charts. I mean, the average was like, <laughs> because, because Bug would be, would be Santa Claus and he'd give him these great grades for doing the things he wanted to do. But people would get aboard safe you know he waved barricades like crazy so it was i wanted to be the the lso that the pilots trusted on the really bad nights yeah five and four that's awesome well that actually gives kind of a good segue because the other theme that i noticed throughout the book is fear um and and you have some amazing stories i'd like you to hit a couple of them at some point but you, you talk about fear um, and it's chapter eight where you say, fight the fear, keep moving forward is the, I think the title of that chapter. Yeah. You have to follow your training to get aboard at night. Uh, you, you got to let that fear go, uh, or, or fight through it, I guess I should say. Uh, and you also have to fight your fear so that when you're in a massive typhoon in the Indian ocean and waves are breaking over the fantail of a large deck nuclear carrier, <laughs> your crew is in a total panic. So, you know, you have to, you have to be the fearless leader and a couple of your stories in there, including the, the Straits of Malacca and all that, um, clearly you were terrified inside and, but, but you can't show that. And by the same token, there's a real dichotomy in there. Cause you talk about being vulnerable and letting, uh, letting those around you know that it, you're not perfect. You have fears just like everybody else. 
Um, so if you could tell a couple of those stories, I'd let, I guess let, let's start with, uh, uh, you know, fighting that training to, or fighting that to get aboard it, uh, at night, um, after you maybe have done a pass or two that uh, you shouldn't have done. Was that the first time? Was that the first time in the barrel? Is that that chapter we're talking about? Yeah, that's, I only had one night in the barrel and the one that, that people who have night nights in the barrel know about and, and, you know, if you have more than one, you're, you're probably en route to a phenab on the way out. <laughs> you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong <laughs> That's, <good>. That's <laughs> a very good point. The night in the barrel, you know, for most of us that know this is you just can't figure it out one night for some reason, you just can't get aboard and it's, you, you can't, it's inexplicable. You, you can't. And so just one particular night, a couple of months into cruise, I mean, I'm, I've been landing a night. Okay. Doing fine. I mean, I'm kind of not that great because I'm a nugget, but it's one particular night uh, going out very, very dark as they all are. The deck was moving a little, but not that much. I mean, there was no other reason than I could not figure out what I was doing. So <laughs> had, uh, you know, Tim Awal Cowden in the back seat, a, a guy that I flew with sometimes, but not all the time. And for some reason we weren't clicking as a crew necessarily always fun to fly with them. And, and we, we did fine, but on the landing approaches, what, I mean, as an LSO now, I can tell you what I was doing. I was getting too low in the, in the middle, about a half mile out overpowering through the glide path. And then we used to call a dog in the back of a pickup truck. So jumping into a pickup truck while it's, while it's going and I would fly over the wires. And so what you have to prevent is that settle in the middle, that part where the airplane's coming down through. And for some reason, I was not able to do that. And the LSOs were not able to describe to me what I was doing wrong. And so I went around seven times. All the air wing was all aboard already. They'd been aboard for an hour and wow. going around. And, and I tanked twice. Um, after the second time, drained the A6 tanker. No gas airborne, just me and just him you know, down there, no chance for more gas and okay. a thousand miles from everywhere. Right. No. You're, you're not, you're not making land. No, not going to make land at all. <laughs> no. And I, second time come back down again. Okay, good. And bolter again. I'm like, okay, I, I have no idea what's going on. So the fear, the fear is down there. It's a little bit lower, the fear of, you know, something bad happening, but, but the fear was mostly the outcome. Like, I'm failing professionally here. I can't figure it out. I, I don't know what to do. Somebody else is going to do this for me, but I don't know what to do. So, so, uh, you know, we, we both are again on the sixth time or, or the seventh time or whatever it was went around seven times. Anyway, I'm climbing out total silence from the backseat <laughs> and I'm climbing out to go to 1200 feet to turn downwind again, all by ourselves. And I said, Hey, oh, what are you thinking about back there? And he goes, ejection. And I got a <laughs> So there was a, you know, and I think, that, you know, paddles had a good, a good talk to do with that. So, you know, there's a fear of own like demise, like what's going to happen here fear of the unknown. We're going to have to eject next to the carrier or they're going to barricade me because I can't get aboard. And there's also a professional fear of, of like, Hey, I'm not hacking in here. I'm like supposed to, and those really start to take you over. And, and it takes, you either got to pull yourself out or somebody, the LSO or in, in Tim's case, the ejection thing, I think whacked my head into, all right, yeah. get this son of a bitch aboard this time. And, and I think that's what worked. Um, and then, the, and then the other aspect that comes out in the Strait of Malacca thing, when I'm, I think I'm going to hit that buoy with the Admiral standing right next to me. Um, when things are getting tense and I found, and I, I described this to Ben 
I found when I got really stressed in the airplane, I got very, very, very calm and very, very, very quiet and very, very, very focused. And I think that as a leader, you know, even though you're churning inside and you're not exactly sure what's going to happen and you're absolutely terrified of the outcome, you have to be calm, confident, and we're going to get through this with, with your team. You know, when it looks really bad, you tell them, hey, this is, you know, and I joke about this. So when Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump gets up to the top of the mast and the storms happen and he goes, you call this a storm? Come on. <laughs> there, But I, I joke about that all the time. It's like, you call this a storm? I've seen this before. We're going to be fine. Having an optimistic view and a, and a calm, even though inside you're like not even sure this is going to work, um, is really that gives the team confidence that they can be confident as well and they can put their best foot forward and they can start thinking about, you know, ways out of this. And so even when you go, Hey, um, I'm not really sure what to do here, you guys, but, uh, you guys have any ideas? I mean, you, you don't have to be like, okay, the captain like is totally terrified. has no idea what to do. We got to like weigh in here. So you, you create fear. You don't want to create fear in them. You just want to go, anybody going to get good ideas? Cause, uh, you know, I'm kind of running out here. But I think we're going to be good. You know, so <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, that vulnerability and, and the, you know, I don't have all the answers as a leader, I, I think is something that theme goes through the book. That vulnerability, you've got to be able to do that with your team. And you give them confidence that you're going to find the right answer. You're going to lead them to the right place. It's, it's getting brighter over there. We're getting through the woods. We're going to get through this. We've gotten through this before. Those kind of themes are always great. Um but you also want to be able to call on the strength of the team to get us all through this. And I, th I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the successful teams out there do that collectively. Fig, don't let me steal all the thunder here. I got a bunch of questions. I'm millions of questions written down. So I'm going. Oh, oh yeah. And, and as do I, but go ahead. Okay. Well, so you talk about that um, and, and you ask for input, but there's other times where uh, uh, you gave input and, uh, uh, and you pushed it. You talk about pushing back on your bosses. There was an instance where a, 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 I think she was a lieutenant officer of the deck on the Sacramento pushed back, and uh, you, you credit her with uh, saving uh, damaged potential lives and in uh, careers. And, uh, and you did the same thing uh, in the Indian Ocean. You pushed back on the admiral when he said, oh, "You know, you need to follow these uh, protocols." Yeah, no, we're not doing that. Um, how hard is that? How hard is it to tell an admiral? You're not, I'm not doing that. I know it's well, a protocol, but I, I tell you what, I tell you what's really hard getting your mindset to be able to take the input of a junior officer or a junior person pushing back on you. That's the hardest piece. And so let me, let me go to your question first. It was easy to push back on the admiral because I'm the one responsible for the safety of the ship and he get to, um, and even though he's senior to me, he didn't make the call and it didn't make any sense anyway. I mean, it was totally, you know, we had to follow OTSR, optimum track ships routing, and it was pointing right into the biggest red blotch of storm. And I said, this is wrong. It's got to be wrong. Go back and check. No, sir. It's taking us right through the middle of this thing. And we're getting the crap beat out of us. I mean, there were 60 foot waves. We're going into them and down and the water over the bow and the whole thing. I'm like, the thing to do is to turn left and go with the waves. And that's what we ended up doing. That's where that wave looked like it was going to crash on the flight. That was about 130 feet above us. And, um, Good Lord. Well, that way. And when I go told the Admiral, I said, 
I've got to tell you, I'm going to deviate from OTSR. And he said, no. And I said, no, sir, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you because we're getting the, the crap beat out of us. And I'm going to, you know, I might lose an airplane, you know, off the flight deck or something. I'm going to turn left. And it worked out. Although when we turned right down the coast of India, this, the side of the ship got hammered and, and steel, steel pipes were crushed and stuff. So we made it through that. But because I had the mandate as the captain to do that, that was, that was easy. The difficult piece was, and let me tell you the story about Rebecca Domzowski, who is, who is out there now. I think she's, she's leading in the nav sea world somewhere. She got out of the Navy, I think, and she's leading and she is the best officer of the deck I have ever served with because she stood up to me as the CEO of, of the Sacramento. So this one night again, dark, you know, I'm taking Sacramento dark back. and stormy night. That's a nothing, nothing good. Nothing <laughs> ever happens when it's sunny and, and pristine out. Right. right? It's just, yeah. it's always dark. Yeah. dark. And you know how get out there. I mean, yeah. you guys talk, refueling and going over with the smallest cockpit. I mean, you get really small when it's dark like that. So, um, anyway, we're going back to join up with Carl Vinson. And I was, I was trying to prove to Rick Wren that I was a really good ship driver, you know? So it was probably something akin to watch this, you know, which is like, Ooh, no. Um, and I, I'll tell you what program that craft is the most valuable tour you can have because I learned so much driving that big supply ship as a fighter pilot that that I took on later as Nimitz and learned how to manage risk on a big ship. But this one particular night, we were coming back to be plane guard in behind the ship because I wanted to train my junior officers. And I said, I said, okay, look, I need you to use geometry to get in the right place. I do not want to be stuck behind Vincent, you know, at like three miles trying to catch up. And so I was being aggressive in the in the rendezvous. And you guys know for it's same as in airplanes. And so you're you're leading the other airplane to get in, you know, close to them. And so I was leading Vincent and and I was sitting there and I knew what I was doing or what I was trying to do. And Lieutenant Domzalski, who was a fairly new uh, officer of the deck, very, very good officer, she came over to me and she said, Captain, I've just done a maneuvering board. We need to come left. And I said, No. We're not coming left because you're going to get us behind her. We're going to be catching up, and I don't want to do that. So, okay, she goes back over there and works on our maneuvering board, which is what she's supposed to. Comes back over, it's captain. We need to come left. I'm like, no, because you're, you know, you're going to make us sucked. You know, back there behind the ship. Yeah, yeah. When are we going to catch up? It bears noting that my captain's chair is offset from the center line of Sacramento to the left. So my perspective, looking straight out the window at Vincent, was left biased. I was not on the center line where I was watching where the center line was. So she comes over a third time. This is almost like a, a joke or a story. A third time, <laughs> Captain, we need to come left now. And so I jumped off the chair. I stood over on center line and looked, and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> left football rider, you know, and whoop, so we left Flank speed, by the way, we're at flank speed. The ship is heeling over, and we go down. And, and right about the same time, Rick Rank is up in the radio and goes, "That's pretty exciting," you know, which is kind of code for, you know, what are you doing? You're trying to we ram go, me? <laughs> yeah, we go down to starboard, starboard at about five hundred yards. Oh and my gosh! Turn radius the ship. I mean, I just about ran into the starboard side of Vincent because I was trying to be cool, oh and gosh. Rebecca. Dowski saved our ship uh, against the captain, and I <laughs> I still tried to maneuver. So as we got down alongside Vincent, still attempting to get in there, I shifted the rudder, 
just crossed her stern like crazy, still at a flying bell, and <laughs> came out the other side. And Rick tells me that all the officers are pinned to the starboard windows watching me come, and then they go run over the port side to see what happened. <laughs> you did. You did a. Uh, you did an. Uh, you did an underrun. I did yeah. an underrun. Yeah. You say there is no underrun in uh, in shipping unless you're a submarine. No so. <laughs> I had to do an underrun, and, and so. Oh my gosh. She tells this story. I've connected with her on LinkedIn and she, that story is a leadership story. And I tell that story as a leadership story that, you know, her input, you know, and, and, and I, you know, like I said, there's a bunch of failures in my book and that's, that's one of them. I mean, I, I being an idiot, I almost, you know, did a whole bunch of bad things and damage and stuff. And, and it's only because of her, that we came out okay. And, and it just cemented, I already had the notion that I was going to take input from people. Uh, but I'm also a very, and here's, here's the point for your listeners too. If you're a strong personality and you already like, you know, you're sort of an overwhelming and this is why I'm doing it. And you, and you stick to that. If you don't listen for, you know, something snipping in your ear that says you're probably doing the wrong thing here. You're going to get your, <laughs> And every leader that does not take the input of their team is going to get themselves in trouble somehow. Now, hopefully it isn't, you know, crashing a 50,000 ton ship into a hundred thousand ton ship, you know, at night, but, but, you know, there are plenty of examples about there uh, out there about leaders not taking input from their team. One of my favorite chapters, Frosty, I'm Frosty. My, one of my favorite <laughs> chapters, nasty was, was the one that you told the story about, uh, you know, Admiral, uh, yeah, Dave Frost. Yeah. Frosty. Uh, you know, and basically the leadership lesson is, uh, take care of your people. Right. And the story yeah. that he told, uh, and I was reading it, I'm thinking, uh, you know, uh, with the story he relayed to you about, uh, uh, going into port, right. In the Philippines. The frosty story is, is very short and sweet. It's a short, sweet chapter. Literally, um, a whole grunch of us, uh, you know, Pentagon denizens went up to the Fort Myer O club. And they would have, uh, you know, happy hours. We all go up there. And I had been selected for command in my joint job. And I was just up there, you know, fighter bubba's and Frosty, who I don't actually know. Um, Dave Frost, he, he sought me out. He said, hey, congratulations, going to command. And he told me one story. And they were actually in port in Europe somewhere. And all 12 of his F-14s were down going into port. The CAG called him in and said, at the end of the port visit, all of your F-14s, all 12 F-14s will be up and you will cancel Liberty and make that happen. All right, sir, goes out and um, he decides that he will get all 12 F-14s up, but he's not canceling Liberty. And so he collected everybody together and he said, by the end of the import period, when we sail in the morning of that first day, all 12 F-14s have to be up. I'm going to give you guys a couple of days off so that you get Liberty. And then when you come back in, we got to get all the airplanes up. And he gave the task to the squadron and they went out Man. on hooting and hollering and came back. And with only a portion of the port visit left, uh, went to work on the jets. They knew the objective. And when they, they sailed all 12 F-14s were up and he focused on taking care of the crew. And he said, take care of your crew. He goes, don't take anybody else's advice about, you know, how to take care of them, but just give them the objective and they, and they, you know, they want. Now, what's interesting is he, he did not tell 
the crew that he was told to cancel Liberty, but they found out afterwards and so they knew what he had done for, for nice. them. Nice. And so they did not want to disappoint him. So all 12 F-14s were up and they, they fired up in the last couple of days of the port visit, got everything done, got all the turns done and the airplanes were all up and they still got to go on Liberty. So that's the story that he briefed yeah. me and forget that story. That was way back in 1995. And, uh, and, uh, and that's when I learned the story. Um, the Zab story, uh, that's the one that, you know, you know, cover, cover their six is, is the story. And for the readers who haven't read the book, you, you'll love the story because it, there's a great, you know, discussion for anybody who's been to QB or heard about QB, you know, QB point of Philippines. We we're flying out of the Philippines. We got to do that while the ship was docked for three weeks at Midway Pier. And it was epic. So you go <laughs> go fighting and stuff and then go out in town on the Longapo for Liberty and then come back and fight the next day and you go out in town for liberty so i mean you know it's kind of like being in the marines or the air force right not the navy we're right actually in the store. <laughs> yeah. so uh anyway we go out and do this fighter sweep mission and come through you know we sweep through clark we have a great time there's a division of us and we go blowing out over the south china sea turn south going back towards QB, come over the top of alabama island you know big old inverted pull back down to 200 feet and there's a ship right in front of us and holy crap let's fly by the ship which is, we did that a lot back in 1986 lots of flybys and you know and stuff like that so we do we do as i get there in the lead section there's this big white puff of smoke and and somebody on the radio goes is that stack gas and you know holy crap they're shooting their gun and so it's like <laughs> whoa we're by. um after the puff of white smoke we go whipping by the ship and the the back section pitched off real hard and we didn't hear anything. I mean, all four airplanes have eight cockpits with guard on, and there are no guard calls on the on the you know thing. No guard calls at all. Right. And so we go back. So we would have heard, you know, we would have, you know, no, no, yeah. we just I'm total silence where we're whipping down over you know, two hundred feet over the water. And so go back and two hundred wow. feet, Vic. Sure. Okay. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. they're in the PI, two hundred feet. Is that your story, Nasty? And you're stuck with it. <laughs> we were over yeah. the water. So I, <laughs> You know, get down there and the altimeter starts to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we go into the break, you know, and just boom, yeah, huge break, lots of noise come in, you know, chuckle, 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 debrief, go into the strike debrief and get a pretty good debrief of the fighter sweep guys. We do really good. And so, you know, back aboard the ship, changing to Liberty clothes, about to go. I stepped through the blue tile area, walking by, you know, Ron Zlatiper, call sign Zap. He's the keg. I go stepping by his office, go, hey, Keg. He's a really great guy. I mean, he's he just is so personable. And, uh, hey, Nasty, you got a minute? You know, and. Uh, no. Uh, so no, go, sir. <laughs> no, sir. See ya. <laughs> no, but the, no. I mean, the guy he was, it's like, got to be, oh, yes, sir. You know, go pound it in there. And he goes, uh, hey, you do a flyby a ship today? I go, yes, sir. You know, because yeah. flybys were authorized and he authorized those. And he, he goes, uh, do you know there was a gunfire exercise going? And I, uh, no, sir. And it got really serious real fast. And I saw my Liberty going away. <laughs> walk over and there's a chart on his wall, kind of where you walk into his best. Remember to this day, it's in the gap between the, the head door and the wall going into his stateroom. And his big try. Show me where you, you came down. I said, yes, sir. We came off, you know, QB or uh, Clark here over this island, Alabama Island, ship about right there. He goes, you didn't hear any guard calls. I said, no, sir. You, you have guards selected? Yes, sir. All eight cockpits. I mean, you know, yeah. we got eight airplanes, guards up. We didn't hear a thing. He goes, you re you review no times in the brief? Yes, sir. You know, of course, somebody in the briefer goes, no times checked, you know, so <laughs> yeah. yes. Done. <laughs> Did Done. I read 
and you didn't see anything about a gunnery exercise. No, sir, we did not. He goes, okay, going to Liberty? Yes, sir. Okay, have a great Liberty. So I leave, go out of Liberty, hear nothing else about it. Turns out Skipper tells me later, Keg, uh, uh, well, what had happened is, and the reason he questioned me, and I didn't know this until later, was the skipper of the USS Oldendorf, which was the ship, sent out an Opera F3 Navy Blue to the entire Navy that says F-14s uh, from CAG-15 flew through their gunfire exercise, totally unsafe, you know, it, it didn't heed the guard calls, and boom, broadcast the entire Navy. What and, guard calls? Yeah, what guard calls? So... So CAG sees this thing and he didn't tell me there's this operator. He didn't tell me anything about it. Just asked me whether we had done that. Yes, sir. So he apparently called again, unbeknownst to me, Skipper told me later, he apparently called the Skipper of the Oldendorf and read him the riot act for one releasing the, the opera three without talking to him. I mean, it's right in the same strike group and we're right here. You should have called me before you did anything like that. And then he tells them, and their maneuver was authorized. I authorized them at all times. Their secondary mission is, is, uh, is double SC, service, subsurface surveillance. And so that, that I authorize that flyby of your ship. And the next time you do something like that, I'm going to come over there. And we're going to discuss this in person. <laughs> uh, and, and okay, you know, epic leadership. Right. And the lesson I, I uh, you know, took from that, and I talk about that story all the time, is if somebody in your command or somebody in your business or somebody in your group does something, you defend them. Till the cows come home. Now you have a discussion with them when they come back and you, and you figure out where the training went wrong, but you, you don't sell out your, your team to, you know, external, like, you know, people or, or something like that. But he, he had, he had our backs. And um, of course the trust was sky high with that. And that is awesome. That. And I then love he that told story, him, man, don't ever do that Navy wide again. What's your, what's your major malfunction? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. Go All right, fig, and, you got and questions. I got. I, oh yeah. So, uh, you know, you uh, so many things uh, resonated with me when I was reading your each chapter. I was like, okay, you know, yes, I've had this experience, and yes, Such, I've had that. Yeah, deeply so, personal uh, level for those of us that were active duty, guaranteed. Uh, cool. The cha- I think the title of the chapter is "Let Them Know You Care," and then the uh, the hook was the uh, you know. Uh, you were walking, I think you were walking to the, walking out to the flight line to go flying. And one of your uh, plane captains or crew chiefs or hydraulics men was walking in front of you. And you knew uh, that um, that individual had a wife that was uh, in the hospital or something. So you said his name and he kind of looked over his shoulder and was like, oh, he's not talking to me. And I go, no, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> anyway, um, can, can you, can you relate that story? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. That was one of my early lessons in, um, in command of VF 31. And it was, it was about, you know, learning people's names. And I, I, um, I, the, 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 the story I concocted in my head and this never actually happened to me, but I, I made sure it didn't happen was that I was walking around like the exchange where people would come in in their civilian clothes and stuff. And, and so here I am. And of course there's one commanding officer, pretty recognizable person. And so, you know, here I am in a, in one of the aisles and, 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 a, and, and an obvious, you know, a male sailor comes up and goes, sir, 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 I want to introduce you to my, my wife and, and kid. It's like pretty obvious that this person works for me in the squadron. And, and I, you know, let's say I didn't know his name and I go, I go, Hey man, what's going on? You know, shake his hand. Oh, is this, you know, this is my wife, Sally and hi, Sally. How are you? Thanks so much for, 
you know, what you're doing is this little Susie, you know, and is that your little bear? And so I do the politician thing with a face. And it's pretty obvious I don't know the person's name. And um, and and then they walk away, and the wife says to the sailor, that guy doesn't even know who you are. He doesn't even know that you come in every day and on the weekends and on the nights, and you've missed Susie's birthday, you know, this, you missed our anniversary, and he doesn't even know that you work for him and you want to stay in the Navy. Why should we stay in the Navy? Because the guy you work for does not care about you. I never wanted that to happen. So I started learning everybody's names in the squadron so that I would not be embarrassed when somebody came up and said Skipper and I didn't know who it was. And so I learned everybody's name and um, it was, it was pretty easy. There were only 300 people in there. I knew all the officers names and the enlisted people were a little bit tougher, but I, I went through and I, and I learned their names. And if I didn't know their name, I'd ask them. Of course, they got a name tag on. And so, I'd, okay, that's so-and-so. All right. That's, and, and I would work really hard on when they didn't have a name tag on by calling them by their name. So anyway, this particular time, I'm walking with a couple of troubleshooters in Fallon, um, you know, walk into our airplane to go fly in a really crisp, nice morning. And, um, you know, Petty Officer Edwards is one of the, is one of the troubleshooters. And I said, Betty Officer Edwards, because I knew that something was going on with his family at home. And I talk about it in the book, but it's Betty Officer Edwards, you know, start angling towards him. And he's looking at me like, I, I'm, you know, like, well, I don't be- <laughs> Yeah. And I literally get close and I eat, sir, you know, you're, you're talking to me. And I go, yeah. I mean, he goes, you know my name. And I said, of course I know your name. He says, well, if you know my name, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Like, no, 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 no. So, Hey, do you need to, do you need any help? No, sir. No, no. And, and, um, he apparently talks to his wife later on that conversation gets to the ombudsman. The ombudsman calls Kelly and says, the skipper knows everybody's names. <laughs> and to, then he must care about everybody because he took the time to learn their names. And the message I have for leaders out there is, it is as simple as learning somebody's name, and especially how you pronounce it, like in the story on Sacramento with, with uh, Petty Officer Ogbogodo from Nigeria. But you, you learn how to say their name, and, and that small thing, that small gesture will is a way to demonstrate to people. And it's not fake. It's authentic. It's a way to demonstrate to people that you actually care about them because you took the time to learn their names, and you took the time to thank them for the work they do for you. And so that's where that chapter comes from and it was it has come back in spades that go all the way back to conversation we had about people being you know feeling valued for what they do the basic foundation of that is knowing their name and what what they do for you so that's huge yeah yeah thank you for that thank thank you for that story um you know i i uh like i was saying um in 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 repeat uh, chime in here so many things that i read uh in your book resonated with me and um i was a i was a first lieutenant in my harrier squadron they uh, they put me out in the um uh i was a maintenance uh oic for officer in charge of the hydraulics pneumatics and metal shop so you know i i suddenly had uh 65 or 70 marines that i was you know in, uh, i was the officer in charge of and and you know all i really wanted to do was fly airplanes well we had a day shift and a night shift, you know, it's a 24 hour operation fixing airplanes around there. Well, the gunny that was, uh, uh, the senior, uh, enlisted guy in charge of the hydraulic shop pulled me aside one day and says, uh, 
So, Lieutenant, what are you what are you doing at seven o'clock tonight? And I said, Well, uh, Gunny, I'm probably going to be uh, home <laughs> yeah. having dinner. And he goes, Well, what you what you really really need to do is uh, you need to be here and let let your Marines see you here. And yeah, like, at seven o'clock at night. And he goes, Yeah, because uh, you never see them. You're gone before they get here, and they leave before you come in. And so I started doing that. Uh, I bring a, I bring a couple boxes of pizza in and then the next thing you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I'm going to fast forward this story. We're on, um, let's just say we're on, we're, we're on Liberty somewhere where we're deployed and it's, uh, and I'm in a, I'm in a dark, uh, uh, a place where I don't think there's anybody around except me and a couple other uh, of the pilots. And there was an altercation, and out of the shadows came about 25 Marines. Well, they were my Marines. And I, I literally had to back them down because I thought, I thought, I thought there was going to be homicides committed. These guys were going to kill everybody because they put hands on me. And I'm, I'm like, well, see, and it's, and it was just because I was there. I was present. I knew their names and everything that you already talked about. But, uh, what what a great experience that was! It's amazing, like you said, it comes back in spades. It. I love that story. That's you, you, yes, that. And it took the gunny to tell you, "Hey, Lieutenant, seven o'clock tonight, be here." And the thing, go in and realize that you have working for you at two in the morning, and you show up at two in the morning, and just the fact that you showed up at two in the morning, right? You're like, guy, okay, that guy, and that's the only thing you have to do is to care enough to show up and. <laughs> It, it 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 does it reverberates it's such that story fig that That's was a awesome. leadership that was a leadership yeah. lesson uh that i'll never forget and i always mentored others uh with that story i said you know had he not you know he he couldn't have give two shits about me but he he wanted uh he wanted to help me and he did yeah. and yeah. it was huge Which and, and I, I take the second here hold on i will take the second to emphasize that's where my focus was too so on the chief's mess and that gunny knew exactly what he needed to do to make the squadron better by advising the lieutenant on what the lieutenant needed to do. And he connected the officer's mess with the enlisted folks. And that's what good chief's mess do. And I, I talk about that is they connect the officers and the enlisted. And when the chiefs are connected, that squadron runs great. When the gunnies are connected, that squadron runs great. And yeah. that's yeah. our did that. He knew what to do. So, so nasty. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I would say, and and I don't know what percentage of our listeners are civilian, vice military. I'm sure a bunch are military, but we do have a bunch of civilians, and I would say the vast majority of civilians have no clue what the difference between enlisted and officer is, what a gunny or a chief or a lieutenant or a lieutenant commander or a master sergeant or any of that is. Can I trouble you to break down just a little bit for? Uh, how that command structure breaks down and why somebody who's been in the Navy uh, for six months outranks somebody who's been in the, the Navy or Marine Corps for 22 years. And why, why is it like that? Number one. And number two, I'd, I'd like you to go into your story near the end where uh, you were rightfully brought to tears because you were made an honorary chief and man, that's something that that's impressive right there. That tells me a lot about you. I, I, I want to one up. I want to one up it. Uh, okay, uh, nasty. I want to one up. I want to tweak. I'm going to tweak his request. Uh, can you, if you will, and I and I, I know you can, kind of put into civilian terms uh, 
you know, what a, uh, what a petty officer, or a chief would be in a, in a, in a corporation. Yeah. Go, right. As opposed, you know, just kind of break it down. Yeah. I was already going there. And, uh, so thanks big. And, and it's a great question. This is a really difficult thing. A couple things to unpack here. And if I don't do something, don't get to something, please, please remind me if this no, is very, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in the United States military, um, and we're, we are unlike other armed forces in that we have, um, non-commissioned officers, NCOs, and the Marines are famous for small unit leadership and teaching leadership at the, at the level and non-commissioned officers are, are that, that pivot point between commissioned officers and by the United States Congress, a commissioned officer is, is somebody who's, who's, who meets a set of requirements. So typically has gone to a four-year school or some commissioning source, and they enter as an ensign in the Navy or in the Coast Guard, a second lieutenant in the Air Force, the Army, and the Marines, and then they go up from there. And yes, because of the requirements for commission, they're wet behind the ears young, just out of college, don't know anything, and they're the senior person. And so when the gunny recommended to Fig to go in, he's like, sir, you need to come in at seven o'clock. And Fig could have said, I'm going to order you, you know, I'm going to say no. And the gunny could have gone, okay, sir, you're the senior officer. And so the good thing is that that Fig learned how to listen to the gunny. Um, and then and then down below, the non-commissioned officers are the enlisted ranks. And so there are petty officers and below. Um, they are, you know, sergeants and below. There are, there are enlist, enlisting requirements in the United States military, and they're very high bar for, for anybody to entry. And in fact, I think I heard recently there is something like, you know, 90% of the American youth can't even meet the requirements to be recruited into the, into the DOD right now because they're so high. It, it's something yeah. shy. But anyway, the enlisted folks, they're, they're, they're technicians. And so they, they're, they're taught a trade. And so they're aircraft mechanics and they're, um, they're, they're boiler techs and they're people that, that work on the equipment. Uh, they're journeymen. And so in a company, especially the best parallel is a manufacturing company. So they're the line workers and your NCOs are like the first line managers out on the, sh- uh, the factory floor that are leading the line workers in manufacturing, whatever it is. Um, you know, it could be an airplane. It could be, you know, widgets. It could be, you know, cabinets. It could be dishwashers or whatever. And you got the first line managers and the officers are generally the, the managers who are in ties and in the white collar stuff, maybe doing some functions like finance and things like that. And then there's the executives that are kind of like senior officers and admirals that are in the C-suite. And so the parallel with an admiral is, is somebody is like a CEO or a CFO or a COO. And so the company functions well, like the military functions well when there is a synergy between the CEO or the C-suite folks, the senior officers down through the line managers, down to the enlisted folks on the mission uh, of the, of, of the company or the unit. And that communication flow going through, you know, all of those is, is how you, how you parallel those things. So you have to understand where, where the continuity is and you can't, you cannot dismiss like, hey, I'm an officer. I'm going to deal with officer. I'm going to stay up here. And there are people 
Um, and I know some of your listeners out there who are in business know leaders in their company who stay in their office and they go, I'm, I'm the C fill in the blank, or I'm the executive vice fill in the blank. And no, I don't need to go down there because my job is right here. Well, they're losing the ability to influence the company. Much like in the military, if I was a, a captain or a commander, an XO, an admiral, and I didn't get out and around the unit, I was not going to know what was happening. And I could not, you know, connect with the team. And, and the examples are Everything from just letting him see you and listen to you. Hey, that thing you said, Captain, on the 1MC the other night, I don't understand. What was it? Okay, I can tell him. And a group starts to form around you to Fig's story about getting defended on a, you know, in a dark alley because they care about him. And, and that's, that's the, 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 the biggest thing to get to. Um, but Kelly and I actually figured out, especially when I got into the ship world, that our focal point was was the chief's mess. That's mostly where we connected. I don't know why it was just, it just kind of, you know, I don't know whether it was the way we think or live or, you know, there's halfway between being an officer and, and being an enlisted, getting our hands dirty and stuff. But we both really resonated with the atmosphere in the chief's mess. And so at the end of my career, you know, there were a lot of officers I knew that got named, you know, honorary chief petty officers. And I always envy that a lot because, I, the, the, the chief's mess to me, you know, as a captain, I had to request permission to go into the chief's mess on my own ship. Like, right. I, I that's him. Right. Yep. Yeah. I had a mission and they had to invite me in when I was the admiral, I had to be invited into the chief's mess. So there's, there's a mystique about the Navy chief that is, that really resonates with me. But anyway, at, at my final quarters, the master chief petty officer in the Navy, um, who was on the OpNav staff where I was, and I was the the OpNav N9 on there, um, the deputy CNO for for warfare. At my final quarters, he mustered all the chief petty officers, and and without me knowing it at all, and I said, no, I don't want you don't have to come, you know, I don't want to make it mandatory. Brought every chief petty officer in the OpNav staff, and then and then almost the very last thing, um, he stood up and he did a speech and awarded me the honorary chief petty officer thing. I cried. I just cried. Yeah, you can see it. I look like he shot my dog or something. I'm just, just falling and they're pinning the, um, you know, the anchors on me and, and it had just such a powerful effect because, because I felt included in that fraternity sorority, you know, that, that brotherhood yeah. sister chiefs mess in the Navy. That's non-commissioned Marines in any service to be included in that is, is, awe-inspiring so yeah. there's something i missed though repeat you had another question i missed something in that answer long answer no i i, I think you pretty well broke it down i maybe i lost track of it then but i asked you to you know, break down what the difference between enlisted and officer and and you know why somebody with, with six months can outrank someone with 20 years and it uh I, I think you did a nice job of breaking it down and and you go back to the, the chief's mess and it's staff ncos or, or senior staff ncos gunnery sergeant and above in the uh in the marine corps where uh it becomes that th those are the guys that run them run it and i always liken it to there was a supreme court decision once that andrew jackson didn't like and he's like well I'll let him go and force it so it's the admirals and the captains and the generals and the colonels who run the army the navy the air force the marine corps and it's the senior staff NCOs and the senior chiefs that make it happen. Yes. Without those guys, I mean, they are where the rubber meets the road, period. Yep. Because um, they've been there for you know, 15, 20 years. I think it's really impressive is 
you know, you'll have a, you'll have a master gunnery sergeant that has, you know, it's going on 30 years and you got a young Lieutenant or a captain who's, you know, going somewhere between five and seven years. And I've seen junior officer leaders actually dismiss the recommendations of a, of a third year, uh, you know, that's rough of the service. They, uh, do that you, you do that at your peril and that i would offer rough. listeners who are in the civilian world and business if you have somebody that's got that long in the organization they, they are the burning bush you're listening to them they know you're senior they know that but look how much power you have when you go to that person you say hey i want to do what you tell me to do or you advise me to do and you ask questions and you take that input and you take the input from those really, really knowledgeable members of the team, even though they outrank you or you outrank them. Yeah. That's the honors when you are, you know, able and, and, and your organization's failing. If those senior people are not bringing things up to you, that's the red flag. If, if, you know, when you see the quotes about, you know, the, when the passion of people go quiet, that's when you know you're in trouble. It's that kind of thing. When you're not listening to those people, your organization's in trouble. So, yeah. That's, when that's you good. have those, hey, hey Nasty, uh, I just want some affirmation here. But from, I'm speaking from personal experience, and I know you already have it. Um, when you have those people on your side, there's nothing that you can't do. That's right. Nothing. That's it. Yeah, you said it. And, and what you get to, and you've reminded me of something that, that is a, it, the nirvana for you is – is this whole thing about leadership is they don't want to disappoint you and you don't want to disappoint them. Yeah. And it's that human, I, I'm not going to disappoint that guy. I'm going to do everything possible not to disappoint, you know, him or her. And, and mm -hmm. you as a leader are going to do everything possible not to disappoint the people you lead. You just don't want to disappoint them. And that's really nirvana when you get an organization that's running well. I love that. It's so true. All right. Well, thank you, Nasty. Hey, thank you're you. welcome. Thank welcome. you for your service. Thank you, Bride, for her service. And your kids for their service. Whether they, they didn't choose it. <laughs> nope. But they, but they gave it so to <laughs> them as well. Thanks, you guys. This is awesome. Learn how to lead to win. <laughs> this is a life-changing book, I promise. <laughs> Our sponsor, RobinsBirdBrainDesigns.com. Go to our website. So there I was, .us. We've got a glossary. We've got links, links to the video of this entire live stream. A whole lot of fun tonight. To every one of you who has a sailor, a soldier, an airman, a guardsman, a Marine on deployment, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you to all the military members for your sacrifice. And in the meantime, stay safe and check six. Crossing the pond And you could see that I wasn't exactly fond Of all the shit I was wearing On that day Now an F-16 is cramped enough But it's even worse With all that stuff Supposed to save your life But we knew there was no way Cause when you're going down the North Atlantic Man, it's over Yeah, <laughs> Like the song says, it's over <laughs>